0: all right well uh we've all grown up with the idea of contagion, the notion that uh, diseases are passed from person to person, be it a common cold or an STD, usually all due to uh, some evil bacteria or insidious virus lurking in our blood, breath, semen, you name it. Uh, But what if I told you that was just an unproven theory, germ theory, Today, uh, I'm joined by three special guests to discuss just that. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about how they claim to prove viruses even exist, uh, which we've definitely covered on the show before, but uh, also we'll go uh, into the evidence that they uh, have to show diseases have ever been passed from person to person. Is there, is there any evidence for this? We're going we're gonna to look at it. Uh, so I want to introduce uh, my guests. We have uh, Sophia Baraldi, uh, Daniel Reuters, and Dr. Jordan Grant. Uh, and if you all just want to give like a little bit of uh, background on yourselves very, very quickly, uh, we can start with Sophia, uh, Daniel, and then Jordan.
1: Hi, everyone. My name's is Sophia. Um, I'm probably the least educated <laughs> among us all. I'm just a normal person who happened to be into um, health, and I ran into the idea that yeah, viruses didn't exist. And I thought it was really interesting. And yeah, I've been looking into it ever since. And I use my platform on Instagram to try and yeah, just help because it's such a big, um, yeah, it's such a big thing to understand, like to try and break down something that we've been taught for so many years. So I try to help people understand just in really simple terms, like how contagion isn't real, you know, bacteria and viruses don't cause disease. Yeah. Try to just help people understand that in a really easy, um, practical way that they can, you know, use on an everyday basis.
0: Great. And you have a great, great account, raw milk (laughs) and honey on Instagram. Check it out. And Daniel. Hi. Uh,
2: Yeah. Just like Sophia. I'm, normal person um yes i've got some letters and things after my name but i don't really think that that matters very much anymore these days um not in relation to what we're talking about because we're really just looking at the papers so it doesn't matter if you're qualified or not it's does the experiments that we're going to look at adhere strictly to the scientific method Um, and anyone can look at that you don't have to be scientifically trained but yeah, I'm I'm a naturopath, so I've got an undergraduate's degree in uh, yeah natu- naturopathy, naturopathic medicine, um, done a master's degree in human nutrition. Um, I've lectured at colleges and universities and had all sorts of different positions and, and done a whole bunch of stuff in the natural medicine um, field. So I do have like some or what I think is an understanding of the human body and how it works from like a mainstream perspective. Um And was always under the assumption that everything in those textbooks was true and correct. And that everything was established based on hard scientific facts. And certainly in the last couple of years since looking at what that evidence is, I, to my surprise, have learned that it's built on really shaky ground. And a lot of it doesn't actually uh, have any foundation in real science. So it's a learning journey for me as much as it is probably for everyone else here. Um, But yeah, I'm really looking forward to having a conversation with you all today to discuss this topic further. Thanks.
0: Thanks, man. My turn. Um, Last but not least. Yeah.
3: uh, Jordan Grant, I'm a, uh, I guess, a traditional uh, allopathically trained physician. Um, And so, you know, but I, I kind of been questioning Some of the mainstream stuff, all through med school and residency, I I never was on board with a lot of sort of the tactics and beliefs about health. Um, But the last couple of years have been pretty eye-opening for me as well. Just kind of like similar to all our story, I think. We all kind of have a similar story where, although I have met people that have kind of known about the virus thing for a while now, but for me, it's just, yeah, two years and eyes were open, questions were asked, started diving deep. You know, for me, it's been harping. Kind of like Daniel brought up scientific method, science. What is science? Everybody starts talking about science, and so you kind of have to go into that if you're going to really know what you're talking about. And that's been my um, my big um, dead horse that I've been beating for a couple years now. And to me, it, it boils things down to a very simple level, and that one that anybody can understand once they know the method. You can start pulling apart papers really pretty quickly. Um, and so that's helped, I think, teach through a lot of this, but yeah, I, uh, I'm still on a journey of learning about real health because, you know, I, I think there's a lot we don't know. I think there's big picture stuff that seems to be pretty common sense. And then a lot of the other stuff is still out there, uh, in the open for people to start looking into things that we think we know that, uh, have turned out to probably be complete and utter, uh, BS. So yeah, decided <laughs> to talk about all this.
0: Excellent. And you're a surgeon, right? So I am you, a surgeon. I am, you're not, the bo- The human body is not super foreign to you.
3: No, it's not. I've been inside of it. Uh, <laughs> again, but we're talking macro level stuff here, right? Like, uh, you know, I tell people, surgeons, it, it, in general, a lot of it's very simple. It's like, see problem, fix problem, done. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. when people come to us, they know, we usually know what the issue is a lot of times. They have a kidney stone, they can't pass it. It's blocking their kidney, we got to take care of it. I mean, it's very straightforward. Now, when you start getting into stuff about cancer and what should we be doing about it? How should we think about it? Yeah, I'm still in the weeds on that stuff because my whole paradigm has been shifted on a lot of that. So that's, uh, that's something I hope that, you know, down the road can change, but I am, I am a surgeon. Yeah. Urology is a surgical residency. Yeah.
0: Cool. And, um, yeah, that's the thing, you know, that's the, the hope is to flip the paradigm and start talking about the, the, the real, uh, the real science behind everything. And uh, a lot of people are very resistant to that. So hopefully, you know, if there's some new people watching, we can, uh, you know, give them something to think about. But where, so where did this all, you know, this germ theory thing, where did this start? Um, it, I guess, you know, they they say um, Louis Pasteur was the father of of germ theory. Did it start with him? Where did it all go wrong? <laughs>
3: um i kind of taken a look into the history of germ theory a little bit it seems like this the idea the ideas were even there further back than probably people realize um mainly with like what we call the atomists right the materialists everything was particles everything was material wreaking havoc and there were um philosophers of Back in the day, they were just natural philosophers, is what they were called. There were no scientists. It was just people who studied the natural world. And then philosophy is a part of that, right? And so when it came to things like health, um, there were back and forth about a lot of this stuff. I think the true germ theory, from I, my understanding, came from a, a, I can't remember what his actual role was, but I think it was a physician named Fracastero in like the 1500s. And he was uh, you know servant to the Pope. And he had this idea that there were these seeds of disease is what he called them. And um, they could be transmitted by three different routes. And it's, this is still promoted today. It's in the air or it's on, you know, fomites on material, basically that transfers to another human. And I can't remember what the third one was, but um, basically called these seeds of disease and the seed is the germ, right? Germination. So that's kind of where it started in my, I think, and and some other people kind of came along and, started promoting these ideas of, uh, the anima, animalcular or animalacular, I can't remember how to pronounce it, uh, theory, uh, where these little, little tiny creatures are everywhere and, and may cause disease. And then they invented the light microscope and they, you know, I think it was von Leeuwenhoek or I can't remember exactly his name, but started seeing these, but he never postulated they were doing anything. He was just like, Hey, I'm seeing stuff basically. Um, and then, yeah, I think when, pasteur i mean was one of the big players i don't know that he was necessarily the father but his it's with a lot of this stuff right the names of the crazy people get promoted as being the yeah the the guy the dude And, and so but daniel and sophia can probably talk about this as well so
2: yeah what do you got yeah you know it's interesting jordan because i am very cautious about what i read uh particularly when it comes to historical things. So anything past about 1850 for me, I'm like, oh, you know, how reliable is this information that I'm actually seeing? So, yes, there, there is information there where they suggest that these things were actually like germ theory and contagion were postulated, you know, by the Romans like in the 1400s or whatever, and I'm like, okay, <laughs> how do I actually know that? How do I know that these things were actually theories that long ago? Is it a more recent type of thing that's that's come about? Right. It's very hard for me to, to look at those textbooks from like 16 or, or 1700 with any certainty because a lot of them weren't even written in English. A lot of them have been translated and there's like misrepresentations and interpretations of, of words. We you know the word for viruses poisons so like i mean just that in itself really starts to confuse things when we when we look at this from a historical perspective but yeah for the most part i think that's what they say that uh people like Semmelweis, uh the guy who told everyone to wash their hands was like one of the fathers and louis pasteur was another father of of uh um, coke. bacteriology coke. Yeah. coke you know these sort of modern day at the time, modern day, um, the fathers of, of this sort of germ theory thing that we're talking about. But when you go to look for the evidence from those people who originally put these postulations forward from a scientific perspective, there's not a whole lot there. And maybe we're missing something. Yeah, So we're all here today to have a discussion to try and understand what's really going on. And we're not too proud to admit that, that we are wrong. Um, so we're not saying that these things that we're talking about today haven't been proven. We just haven't been able to find the scientific proof, which we would expect to find quite easily and simply um, by opening any m- number of one of these modern day textbooks and saying, well, X causes Y. You know, this virus causes that disease. There should be a reference there to a paper where we can look at it and go, oh, right, they've done it. But we can't find that. Um, And a lot of that, when you want to find the answer, you have to go back to those sort of studies and and things that were done in the 1800s and and early 1900s to really see what the foundations of of this whole thing are. Um, And unfortunately, because that's when a lot of those experiments were done, the foundational and, and validatory experiments were done, when you then bring those up in conversation, people like, oh, that's really old, old science you're talking about here, Dan. I'm like, we've got better <laughs> and, and new stuff that we've yeah. done. And it's like, well, you know, to, to, in order to build upon a theory, you must have sound foundational theories and, and science to prove it. And when you go to that foundation, from my perspective, there's not a lot there. <laughs> so I don't know. I'm sure you've all probably found a similar thing.
0: I was. I just wanted to mention something because you. It's interesting that you um, that you think it may all all be more recent than than we believe. What do you suppose they were talking about? I mean, a lot of people point to the Bible. You know, when they talk about plagues, is that? I mean, I'm not an expert on the Bible by any means, so you correct me if I'm wrong there. But um, yeah,
3: that- I mean, those are supernatural events. I mean, I'm a Christian, and so I mean, I believe in that. You know, that that has nothing to do with a contagious natural phenomenon i mean this was basically especially if you talk about egypt it was basically you know the god of israel uh judging egypt's gods and, and that's that was the irony if you knew what they believed about those gods those plagues fit it was like an ironic play on their gods and how they were destroying those gods so it had nothing to do with necessarily a contagious idea of natural phenomena i think the one thing a lot of people bring up from the bible is this idea of uh what was called leprosy or what's translated leprosy now right but if you take kind of a deep dive in that you'll find that the leprosy of the bible has nothing to do with the more modern idea of what we call leprosy like hansen's disease now um the leprosy in the bible i cannot remember how to pronounce it if you go to jewish sources it's t-z-a-r-a-t Tzarat, or something and it was more just like a scaly fleshy disease that they equated with a judgment from god like it had nothing to do. Like, like like people would be quarantined but it was more based on ritualistic notions of clean and unclean because they did that with everything right it was and it was more symbolic and yet they'd like postpone the quarantine if they needed to get married you know or something like that so obviously they weren't worried about people spreading it to each other and so i think you have to be careful so that that's the only thing that people brought up from the bible times about contagion but yeah when you start digging deep in again yeah how much history is true but you know there's so much about people say well the Chinese didn't have this notion of contagion right and and yet you'll find other modern sources that say oh yeah no the Chinese definitely had a model of contagion and it's like are people just making it up and try to they try to see things where they're maybe not there um but you know what was interesting is you can even find papers from the I guess early 1900s called like the anti-contagionist movement there was this huge movement of people that were calling out the contagion model even not that long ago, um, which is really interesting to read, but they even put their own spin on it. Well, they really, they did believe in some contagion, but not all. And so it's really hard to tease through, but again, you're you're going back to just belief systems here. And so for us, it's more about, it doesn't matter what really people believe. It's matter is, is there a foundation for believing it, you know? So that's where the red flags have come up.
0: Excellent. Sophia, what do you think? Any, any, (laughs) any uh, points?
1: Yeah. I think what people need to understand as well is like, as Jordan Grant saying um, just because it's not in the literature as well, like a lot of these things that may have wanted to be published will not be published in those journals because those journals won't support the ideas that, you know, these people are looking into. I think Daniel, you found that paper that, was going to be published in the, um, I've forgotten where it was now, The Lancet, um, that was questioning, you know, SARS-CoV-2 and whether it was an exosome or a virus um, or, you know, the difference between exosomes and viruses. And, yeah, they, I'm assuming they never got published in in The Lancet. And so that's, that's why we don't see these things in the literature, like these ideas. Um, and, yeah, one of the other things just back on the history of Pasteur and uh, Tom Bichamp, so when I started looking into all this, which, you know, I, I know a, a very little about science and all of the biology and everything, but um, what I did do is I went to my friends that had studied biology or, you know, things like this at, at in uni. And I was like, oh, did you know, like, I've heard Louis Pasteur, like he thought he was fraud, like he, um, <laughs> he was a fraud, like a lot of his results, you know, they weren't actually accurate um and they were like oh no that doesn't mean the germ theory doesn't isn't correct though like that yeah maybe he did but yeah so basically my point is a lot of these people that have studied at uni they may have only looked into the germ theory for a really short period of time and they just learn oh you know lou Pasteur discovered the germ theory was accurate and that that's that's all they learn like they don't look into the actual studies what he did um yeah the methods that he used so you, like, if you look into that, that book that you just showed, Yeah. Um, what's it called? Pasteur versus... The, the Private Pasture Science of Louis oh, Pasteur.
4: Yeah. 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 Like, if journals, you read that... Essentially.
1: His yeah. journals, like, go straight to the source. A lot of people, well, pretty much any scientist, I'm assuming, that um, believes in virology and bacteriology probably haven't read those. that book. Um, yeah. Yeah. A lot of these things, people have not looked into themselves.
3: Yeah. That's... That's what I found, you know, when you talk to people that are supposedly, I mean, even quote unquote, virologists, like I got involved on Twitter, I don't know, a year and a half ago, which was a terrible mistake. Um, (laughs) Just, you know, just asking very basic questions, never coming across trying to end it with a tone or anything until they came back with their tone. Um, They they don't really understand science. I I mean, I, I hate to say I'm not like some elite know it all here but science is a method it's very simple it's very straightforward the purpose of it is and so when they're when they're bringing up the word the science the science the science shows this and then you just actually ask them a few basic questions you know using socratic method and the scientific method like show me where you had your independent variable where like this is the the crux of the matter and i'm I'm sure we're going to get to this at some point but when it comes to viruses right like in order to form a hypothesis i think x causes y well, you have to have seen X somewhere in reality before you can even go, hmm, I wonder if that's causing the thing that I think, you know, the causes, the thing I'm seeing. That doesn't exist with virology. Okay, and, this, and unless somebody can show it to me, I have yet to find it. We've all looked, I don't have any hundreds of papers I've read. You, you, there was never a paper where somebody saw these particles or found these in a human being or an animal, or a plant, and said, I wonder if that's what's causing this disease. And the closest you could get to is with tobacco mosaic virus, which was a complete and utter joke, because they never saw those things to begin with. They took stuff and then crystallized proteins and just claimed, yeah, that's our cause, like after the fact, right? Like, but scientific method is very simple, very straightforward. Anybody can understand it. We all get it at a basic logical level in order to claim x causes y x has to exist and you have to show that it causes y that's it it's that simple and when you start hammering people on this they will go crazy on you they yeah. don't like it yeah. um and to the point where virologists on twitter are telling me well science doesn't prove things anymore." and i'm like then why are you talking why are you saying the <laughs> science says right it's so self-defeating but i mean it's, it's really something. So anyway, I just want to throw it out there early on, because to me, that's the crux of the whole matter. We all get lost in these red yeah. herrings and these rabbit trails about genomics and PCR and spike proteins and all this. And it's like, yeah. none of it matters when you haven't shown the thing to exist in nature and show me how you've proven it to cause a disease.
0: yeah we we definitely play their game a little more than we have to right because the 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 crux of the matter is that you have not validated the virus to begin with you know in order to then go on and talk about viral cultures and you know all their little toys that they that they love to talk about so it doesn't really matter (laughs) at the end of the day if you haven't found x like you said Yeah. Um, and we're going to get into that the isolation, you know, just for shits and giggles, because <laughs> people just love it. But um, but that's an important, very important point to remember is that we have not even found, we have not even found X. Yeah. yeah. So, um, I guess I'll go. I wanted to play a clip from uh, Iconic David Ike's channel. Recently, did an interview with. Um, uh, Dr. Malone and Dr. McCullough and um, I believe it was Dr. Cole's in there as well but he doesn't really say much um, and we can kind of maybe start off the isolation thing with uh, re- responding to some of their um, their points uh, because they've been kind of just like a tag team of, of stupidity uh, going, <laughs> going around everywhere um, denying that you know what we say is um Valid or, you know, just kind of like really gaslighting, to be honest. So um, let me see if I do a little share here. Uh... Great scientists around the world have concluded via control
3: studies that not only COVID-19, but viruses in general have never been isolated following a
4: correct and proper scientific method and have never been proven to be contagious. Can you please speak on this? I disagree strongly. The uh, virology here is well-established. We have observed the agent. We have cultivated the agent. We have used the agent in infectious animal models. I'm not sure where this discussion thread comes from. Viruses are real. Uh, They can be easily demonstrated. They can be cultivated in the laboratory. They can be stored. They can be passaged. They meet all the criteria of Koch's postulates.
0: We're going to stop it right there for now. Um, So what is he talking about when he's saying, he's he's saying viruses, okay? And, um, you know, they can be stored, they can be passaged. What is this dude seeing that we're not seeing?
2: Oh, I mean, that's a, that's a, it's a good question. Um, Probably this, like, when we're observing whatever's in the cell culture, we're both seeing the same things. They're just saying that the thing that they're seeing is the cause of the problem. And we're saying what we're seeing is actually the result of the problem, right? So for them to say that this particle that we're seeing is what we say it is, well, then you must go and do the validation study. You must then take just that thing like we've said multiple times already today and probably thousands of times over the last couple of years, is to take that thing that you're seeing and you're saying is the cause of the problem, just that, and you expose it to a healthy host via a a natural means of uh, infection. So we're not talking about doing some like weird study where you drill a hole in a monkey's skull and syringe in a bunch of goop, like that proves nothing. Um, and if you did that, you would just then have to use the the isolated comp- component. But that's that's they're they're assuming that the particle that they're observing is the cause of the problem because they're seeing it being created in those conditions. They're seeing the cell breakdown, and therefore the, the cell breakdown product was a result of of the virus. But we're looking at that and going, well, actually it's just cellular debris because there is no validation study of taking or like taking that particle and exposing it to a healthy mice, mouse, rat, guinea pig, whatever, ferret, human and showing it causes disease. So how can you make that claim? Um, Any, anything else that he says after that has no bearing or, or no weight. It adds nothing to the conversation because you have to prove the thing that you're saying is causing the problem is causing the problem. They haven't done it. So everything else beyond that in my perspective is, is a moot point. And if, if those um, studies have been done, then I think he says in that clip, like the, the science is good or the science here is well-established. Okay. Just show me, <laughs> just point me to the paper where they've done what you say that they've done let me read it and if it says what you're saying i'll recant everything but so far no one's come to us with a paper like that and been able to show us the science or all the evidence and to me that is very alarming that if that evidence does exist it's that difficult to find like it should be a relatively simple thing to just say here it is um and if it doesn't exist well that's even worse, <laughs> because then everything truly is based on a false premise. So, but I'm not saying either way. I don't know yet. There might be a paper out there that's done this and uh, it invalidates everything I'm saying, which is why I'm not. I'm choosing not to like jump to any side of um, the yeah. argument, like 100% here. I'm like 95% sure that that the terrain theory is probably the correct theory, but there is like that small chance that we might be wrong right so that's my take on on what they're saying there
0: okay does anybody have anything to add um before yeah i I mean man i mean we could unpack this
3: for hours honestly i know that's not what i I mean because i can go off on this stuff for a while but people don't quite understand and and those guys don't understand what they're talking about because and I'm, i'm not being a jerk about it i'm sure they're great people um they go along with the papers because they already assume the papers are true. They already assume there's such things as viruses and that was assumed from the beginning, right? When, when the first concept of virus came out, it was just a thought in someone's head. No one had ever seen a potential virus to then be proven to cause anything. The virus idea was made first and then you build up your, what you see in effects and contrived non-experiments. These are not real experiments, okay? They're not scientific what they, they interpret those already based on their idea of virus, which was never proven to begin with. So again, this is an affirming the consequent logical fallacy. If X, then Y, Y, therefore X. If, if there's a virus here, fairy tale I've never seen, then we'll see X, Y, Z in our contrived experiments. Oh, we do see all that. Therefore it's a virus. No, that's completely fallacious reasoning. And I have brought this up to people and they don't, it's like we're talking two different languages. It really is. They don't even get it. They don't get the fallacy. They don't understand what begging the question is because that's the root of all this. Because all these papers from the very beginning already start talking about virus. And you're like, wait a minute, where was that ever proven? Yeah. But they don't care. They just roll with it. And then every paper builds on those primi- on that premise. And this is done in so many areas of, of all kinds of academia. Um, but in medicine, right? Where you got these papers and they built off somebody else's reference where a claim was made. And they don't really check it. They just kind of roll with it. Like, well, this is just the consensus. So we're going to build on that. And so you have a layer of crap built on nothing. And so for, for them to say the agent, right? What What agent? Where did you see this agent in a person? And so when you go back in time, they didn't have electron microscopes when this idea was brought about. So what they did, they already had their virus idea. Then when electron microscopes come around, they start poisoning animals and tissue cultures they just pointed to particles and go oh that's the virus Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay again that's fallacious you can't just point and declare how did you know you were supposed to be looking for a particle How did you know it wasn't supposed to be some other structure in the electron microscope image you just picked that and ran with it so what they do now is they don't start with particles taken from humans they poison cell lines that are already abnormal they're already dying they you know they remove nutrients a little bit from them it doesn't matter because poisoning cell lines in a dish is not a valid dependent variable right your dependent variable is your effect you're supposed to be studying well this has nothing to do with nature in the first place so it's it's out the window at that point but let's just play their game and go okay so you've taken some crud from people put it into these nasty cell lines wait for them to break down point and declare that particles you see are the virus, okay? Mm -hmm. You have to prove that. Someone somewhere has to have proven if we see cytopathic effect in a cell culture, that proves virus because this paper showed it. Here's the paper, right? That was never done. You cannot find it. It was just assumed from Enders in 1954 based on the crap they'd already done with tissue cultures prior to 1954 before they went to cell cultures, right? So they would just poison tissue cultures or animals they just inject animals with putrefied matter they die or form some scabs or something would happen and they just go yep this proves virus and you got to go okay let's backtrack where was virus ever proven to begin with you don't get to claim things about an entity that was never proven to exist right so anyway that that's the <laughs> that's the can
2: I, can I just add to that point as well with jordan so the body is meant to be the tissue culture. Yeah. (laughs) So the the human body is the tissue culture. The virus is being produced by using our own cells. And therefore, there's enough virus that's destroyed enough cells, which makes you sick. So you should be able to take some sputum and put it into a little pipette and put it into your little centrifuge flask. I don't know, whatever you call it. Put it in the centrifuge centrifuge it down do the isolation experiment and show just the virus in the human fluid body fluid but they say well you can't do that because there's not enough virus so we have to grow it
0: daniel i want to i want to pause you right there if i if i may because i want to watch the rest of this clip because it's gonna be pertinent to exactly what you're saying So let's watch. I'm going to ask you to continue after we
4: watch the rest of this clip. I'm just going to play the whole thing, not section it off. There is the issue that it's difficult to reproduce the human disease in various animal models. And so sometimes that's considered to fail to meet Koch's postulates. But in my experience and that of many, many colleagues, this is a isolated virus It can be uh, reproduced in the laboratory to high titers. It can be purified, and it can be used to infect cells and animals. These are three medical
3: doctors that are talking about this kind of stuff, and uh, they argue, why can't we isolate the virus through a density gradient centrifuge versus the way they're doing it now? Because they're putting all this other stuff in there, allowing it to decay. And I think Stefan Lanka was able to isolate something that looks like COVID with yeast, so uh, that's that's
4: a big thing that people have been talking about. If they're producing something that has virus-like characteristics from yeast, it's likely to be a budded form or an exosome. In terms of density gradient, you need a lot of virus to uh, pull a density gradient. Right. And uh, the way that's typically done is you culture the virus for a long period of time, often in roller bottles, collect very small volumes of fluid, um, you may pass it through a filtration system to further concentrate the virus and then put it on your uh, gradient, whether it's a step gradient or a continuous gradient, and pull the band. That requires a heck of a lot of virus. That is absolutely not how you isolate a primary variant sample. The reason why you have to do it in the presence of the drugs is because you have the problem of contamination with mycoplasma, bacteria, etc., from primary clinical samples. And and so you have to impose stringent criteria that will keep those things from overgrowing the cell layer while you're trying to grow out the virus and passage it. I don't wish to cast shade on my uh, fellow colleagues. I don't know what their background is, but uh, these are classic virology isolation methods and techniques. There's nothing idiosyncratic here uh, in, and to isolate a virus by density gradient you're basically you would require somebody to be incredibly virulent um just shedding uh, very very large amounts of virus and you would have to have a body fluid that has that large amount of virus and even then i don't think it'd be possible
0: Okay, so that's really amazing to me. I'm going to let you finish, but that's really amazing to me saying that there's not enough virus to be found in any <laughs> human body. We're talking about, you know, we shut down the world for the last two years over this over this virus. And he's telling me like, oh, you'd have to have a person that's incredibly virulent. Like, you know, he just, I mean, he's basically saying like it's impossible to act in the way that they're saying that it's acting you know, which is the reason for all the precautions that we're taking, the reason they're masking children, the reason they're like, you know, mandating vaccines. I mean, this is, this is ridiculous. Now, I want to let you uh, respond, Daniel, since that was pertinent to what you were saying as well.
2: I was just trying to follow on from um, Dr. Grant's point because the fact that they say we have to culture this stuff in a petri dish to grow enough virus to see it. Well, how do you know that that is the thing you're looking for? Because you must first find it in the person. You must find it in the person and you must show that that particle from that person when exposed to someone else in isolation causes what you're saying it causes the minute you start taking stuff out and putting it in a petri dish and saying well this is recreating what's happening in the human body without verifying or validating the premise first yep. it's a fallacious argument i just i can't see how people don't understand this and grasp what we're trying to say because we're just looking at the facts we want to see what the facts are you're saying that there's a particle that causes an illness so show us how it does it show us the particle from a human body with no other messing around or adding in particles or other sources of genetic material and and prove your theory (laughs) it hasn't happened and now it's turning into well you have to grow it in the cell Uh, and you know my sort of question around that as well Is that they say that viruses exist in nature. So, how is it able to exist in nature? It's a dead thing. It supposedly needs a cell to replicate.
0: Um, But only culture cells to replicate. Not our cells. They can't find them there. Yeah, they can't find it in our cells. (laughs) Um,
2: But it needs a cell to replicate. Yet somehow it's in nature and it's still replicating. And it's like, it's very confusing. It Isn't does. It, it yeah. doesn't make a lot of a lot of sense because you can't make sense out of a theory that's not true and correct because there's going to be so many holes and flaws in it. Yep. Then you have got to keep patching it up and saying, "Oh, it's your strong immunity that's the reason why," and all these things that are just
3: they're rescue devices. That's what they are.
2: They they are rescue devices, and um, I don't like to go down that sort of whole path. It's like I just want to stick to the original evidence like where is it that you showed that it did cause what you said it caused and if you can't show that to me i find that very um alarming yeah. and if you can't show it why not if this theory is actually true then maybe we can look at some different experience experiments that can be undertaken to prove it yeah so i'm not throwing as i said i'm not throwing out this whole contagion thing it's just that i can't identify the science that they're saying is is the undeniable proof
3: I just want to repeat, Um, people get caught caught up in listening to things and they don't really pay attention to the language being used. They just kind of go with it. You have to be hyper-specific about your definitions and catch people, like when they say, we have to grow the virus. Stop right there. What's a virus, right? You're already begging the question. You're growing a virus. You have to prove virus. You can't grow something never proven to exist okay like that that's again you're you're taking an effect and claiming it's the cause without going through the proper steps to validate that and that's it's so important i don't know why i mean we have to keep harping on it and i don't know why so many people don't understand that but it's to me it's just very like a third grader would understand that
0: it's pre it's presupposition to to epic proportions yeah it uh yeah (laughs) it's it's amazing it's a very absolutely valid point um but let's Patrick.
2: i'm sorry Sorry. can i can i also just add Mm -hmm. which i think might um provide some value to what we're discussing here is that it's it's so important to identify whether it's the cause or not this particular particle because if it's not that is a natural potentially natural response in the human body when a cell is in distress is to produce these exosomes. Yeah. So the longer that we don't find out or we'll turn our head away from the elephant in the room uh, and refuse to do the real science on this, the longer we may be distracted from identifying and treating the real underlying cause here. And the longer we're going to continue to blame a normal physiological response of the human body as the problem. So it's just going to continue to be this war on the human body, the war on nature, the war on the environment, the war on germs, the war against life. Um, And this is one of the reasons why I feel so strongly about it is because if we do have it wrong, if I'm not saying we do, um, if we do have it wrong, then there's a lot of uh, flow and untold effects that will arise from this. Um, And again, this is why we are always just harping on show that show the evidence show the proof show the scientific papers i'm sure there's going to be a lot of people who watch this that think we're nuts sure prove me wrong i want to be <laughs> prove me wrong i'd love it well just because- give me
3: just give us science that's it just give it to us yeah it, it, real science right. Not not question <laughs> begging not not fallacy but that's where you can't find people that actually understand what we even are asking for. Like, I mean, but I agree, with Daniel. I'm sorry to interrupt, but it's just i passionate, just like he is, because. But this is like the allopathic model, and I mean, I'm an allopathic MD. Is we we treat symptoms? We literally have people censoring their body's own natural responses, and we're claiming those are the enemy. And then people take drugs to suppress all their warning lights going on. I mean, whether it's it's symptoms or whether it's a lab value or a marker that's just a response to something, oh crap, we got to make a drug to bring that number down. It's like the number's not the problem, right? It's the underlying cause. So this constant conflation of cause versus effect, it's rampant, not only in medicine, but in all of quote unquote science where they just have effects and then people make up stories about them. And that's not science. And I think that's been, again, the broader picture goes to that not just with virology it's a bigger issue that goes back a long time but
0: anyway warning lights is a really great way to explain it actually because it's almost like the way the, the allopathic model works it's like if you get all your warning lights coming up on your car right it's like if you go in and then remove the lights yeah. and then say okay everything's good now <laughs> the lights are gone yeah. <laughs> right yeah,
3: okay. yeah. and then, then your car's just breaking down more and more and <laughs>
0: Yeah. You haven't addressed the issue. Like what's going on with the engine? What's like, what caused those lights to go on and warn you? That's right. So, yeah, that's a really great, great way to great analogy. Um, Sophia, did you have anything to add? No, you're the quiet one.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Um, (laughs) Actually something uh, to do with what you're talking about. A lot of people also um, tell me, well, if viruses don't exist, like why do antivirals work? Like people think that because there's a medicine that works, that, that validates the idea of a virus. So maybe you can go into a bit, like why, why would you say that antivirals work? I mean, it doesn't prove that there's a virus, but.
3: Define work.
1: Yeah. Well.
3: I mean, really, <laughs> again. Symptoms, work.
1: symptoms going away, maybe. Exactly.
3: Uh, exactly. Yeah. So again, it's just no different than somebody with a shoulder injury and an orthopedic doctor giving them an injection of corticosteroid and their pain goes away. They didn't, they didn't fix the injury, but they feel better. It worked, right? Like so. Again, people confuse effects with the story underneath. So they go, "Oh, well, that did that, therefore it must mean the story was true." That's again, that's affirming the consequent logical fallacy every time. And I know, I know, I'm a broken record on that, but this is a big deal. Like I, I knew this going into med school, so I saw it everywhere. I mean, I was going crazy half the time. Med school going, going to pull my hair out because I saw all the fallacies not with our virus stuff, sadly, but I mean, with a lot of the other stuff. Um, but just because something works to achieve a desired effect, it may be an arbitrary effect. Maybe, you know, somebody decided we want to suppress symptoms. Therefore, that's what we define it working. So then yeah. they, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. again, it's, it's like uh, giving a vaccine and people say, well, it works. How do you know? Well, they got an antibody response. So you define it working by an arbitrary rise in antibodies and right. It just means you poison somebody right i can I can beat you with a bat and get your antibodies to go up, right like so and, and I know I'm being like it sounds silly, but it's you know we can give a lot of examples of that, but that's what I would say about quote unquote antivirals yeah. if you look at their mechanism of action, you're basically probably suppressing symptoms in some way. I mean <laughs> kind of like how a lot of antibiotics work. I think it's just because you killed bacteria when antibiotics can damage the body's natural response to healing, they can impair white blood cell function and all these things that are going on. it's not. think these drugs are hyper specific and they go well it's called an antiviral so it must be true right like they think that it's in the language and that's where the double speak comes in and people just uh, they it's like virus isolation oh they said they isolated it so it must be real and people don't think any further than that instead of going wait how do i know that right so that's what i would say about antivirals
0: and and speaking of antibiotics my first maybe like you know questioning moment with with viruses is like how they you would always go to a doctor right and if you know if they believed there was a virus they wouldn't give you antibiotics because antibiotics kill life antibio right so it's a dead thing you know they can't do anything with it um so we're to believe that this dead particle is somehow <laughs> causing issues you know, how does that work? Like, I think a staple of science is that nothing dead can give life, you know?
3: Well, if you're an evolutionary biologist, you can make up any story you want about <laughs> innate matter coming to life and developing intelligence. And so again, virology is an offshoot of that pseudoscience. And uh-huh. so that's why you see all their little family trees and all these different things with the uh, virus mutations. And, all. and so people kind of need to look into that a little deeper as well. It, uh-huh. These things go back to a lot of, uh, unproven claims, basically.
0: And, okay, so before we continue, I I just want to make sure, so people understand, they're not, they're, first of all, they're presupposing a virus exists, right? Without, they're not validating X. So that's the main point. And if we're, if we are to, to presuppose that virus, um, they're not finding these things in nature, in, in the blood, in, in semen and anywhere, that they're saying, you know, with not saliva, which is hilarious because we're all wearing masks. Well, I'm, we're not, but, you know, <laughs> a lot of people are. Um, they're not finding them anywhere except for that Petri dish. Their, their little man-made concoction, right? Well, you have to be
3: careful because they will say they are finding them based on PCR and antibody antigen tests. Okay. <laughs> so, again goes back to definitions, but you can't test for something never proven to exist. So that, again, it, it just, but they'll say that, right? Like the modern day virologists, they think that it, the genomics is everything. And they think they can literally construct these uh, sequences and claim they identify a quote unquote virus and that's all you need. And even there were papers written on this from old school virologists calling out the newer generation for just doing nothing but PCR all the time. Not that the old school guys were right. But they were at least calling it out. Like you you can't you guys can't do this. Like you you have to, you know, you need to do it our way. You need to do it the old school where we, you know, look at cell cultures and particles, but they're just going with PCR and claiming we isolate the virus that way. So there's like there's three or four different ways they claim to find viruses. And this goes back to the old studies with colds where they take snot and go, We took the virus. And then we gave it to somebody, and then they do something, get an effect, and they go, we isolated the virus. So they're using the term in all these different ways, and, and it's the same thing with the isolate. And, and so you have to, until you've taken a deep dive and read all these papers, it can be really confusing for people because they kind of, on a surface level, they're just like, oh, okay, well, yeah, there's the virus. But you have to know how they use the lingo and how it's morphed over the years and all that. But, mm-hmm. but to your point, no, they're not finding these things in people because when you directly ask them, they say things like, oh, there's not enough you know, even though the body should be teeming with them. And then you've got people saying there's 450 trillion different viruses in the world, you know, all this nonsense. It's like, well, where are they?
0: Yeah. The body's the best culture you could ask for. I don't know why you're not finding them, man. Like, you know, it's, that's very, a very strange thing to say. Um, Patrick, sorry to interrupt you.
2: Yeah. But you know, just, this is another important point that doesn't really get discussed a lot either. And this point is, from what you said dr grant that there are supposedly thousands or hundreds of thousands depending on what sources you read of viruses in a human body and different types of viruses um actually and and they say that there's a virome so there's more viral particles in your body than bacterial cells and your cells combined there's meant to be more viral particles so if that's the case these things are ubiquitous when you take a sample of fluid from a human body, um, how do you know which virus you're growing? Yeah. And then when you grow these viruses, how are you now differentiating between maybe you've got 50 different types of viruses in that fluid sample? How can you point to one and say, well, that's chickenpox that's and right. that one's measles and that one, like
3: yeah.
2: how are you then um, separating those viruses from each other, Cause they would all be very similar because I think the way that they um, use these density gradient centrifuges is based on weight and what we well, yeah, density. So size and weight. Yep. So if these um, particles are all of similar density and they're putting them through a, a centrifuge and they're getting them into a small band, how, what's, what's next? How do you then separate one virus 1, virus 2, virus 3, well, virus 4, yeah. virus 5, virus 6? Yeah. How do you do that? And then also there's exosomes in there too, which are very similar in their morphology and density. So how are you separating those as well? How are they doing this? It, no one's ever really been able to explain that to me. And um, maybe I'm just overlooking some really basic, steps of, of virology here but i've never even seen that being mentioned in any of the literature that i've read
3: it's a that is that is key is what he was saying and i wanted to bring it up a minute ago as well when malone was talking about the centrifugation again they're begging the question that they know which density band is the viral band in the first place how do you know did you go through every band at some step in the past and and assess everything in that band and every different type of particle that should that's probably clumping together no they didn't do that they just point and declare. And there are papers on exosomes where they state we can't uh, separate exosomes from viruses because they're the same size. And so there's no really good way to do it. Uh, they, so all these times that you're pointing to particles in cell culture, where are the exosomes at? Right? Indistinguishable where,
0: where are is the word they use.
3: Yeah, but they just get to point at one. And like Daniel said, how do you know there's not, we're supposed to be all these other viruses, just like all the bacteria that they have to kill, right, with antibiotics? Well, there's supposedly more viruses whether they're pathogenic or not they call them virus-like particles they can call them whatever they want all these different kinds of particles and yet they just find one and go yep that's the virus well again find it in nature in a person show us it caused disease that's all we're asking to me that is not a big thing to ask it really isn't like Mm -hmm. that's that's just like basic so can i
1: just clarify something yeah so we know that obviously they never get virus, well, what they call viruses, they don't get them from directly from people's sputum. They put it into a cell culture with uh, multiple other things. But when they do find these particles that they call viral particles and they take photos of them, do they ever try and put those into healthy people or animals and make them sick? Have they ever tried to do that? I don't
3: remember yes. that. Yeah, I think I found papers where they were where they spun down the supernatant and taken those and usually just injected them into animals, um, I think. It, it's been a long time since I've read those. Daniel's yes, read a have. lot more papers, yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. They have. And, but, you know, and... the, the, some of them do get sick, yeah. However, um, it's the supernatant that they're exposing them to. Yep. They're exposing them to toxic soup so they haven't taken they haven't purified that supernatant to now just have virus supernatant like there's all the stuff that's been added to that cell culture now being injected usually into like the peritoneal cavity or the brain or you know into the bloodstream and they get some weird non-specific symptom they say ah see this mouth had tachycardia and ruffled fur Therefore, it was the virus.
3: It's like, oh, okay. but you can get that effect with any kind of injection of almost any foreign protein or something. I mean, that's the thing. And so it's all contrived, right? Like that's, that's not a natural. And that's where I guess the contagion studies come in better because at least they tried in a quote unquote natural way. Just expose people to fluids and sneezes and coughs and all this. And let's see what happens. Like that's more natural. That's more scientific than what they've done here with all this other stuff because this is contrived like even you you could never let's say they're growing these particles in a cell culture you've already bastardized the sample so much you're never going to be able to put it back together like it was in the human supposedly in the first place where they're in a droplet and that's how they say they spread you can't do that right you've already undone things and twisted it so much with chemicals that and so it's it's really just kind of meaningless I mean other than the obvious stuff we've already talked about but like the contagious oh, studies were at least they kind of tried you know and they don't do those anymore.
0: what's really funny to me uh is dr malone says that well we have to do this we have to add these um you know toxins in like they're adding gentamicin amphotericin right in with like monkey kidney cells and those those antibiotics are toxic specifically to to kidney cells so you're going to get those cells to die and he says well it's because we don't want to contaminate it <laughs> well your whole process is contamination your whole your whole entire viral culture process is contamination and you're getting the effect that you want uh, by mixing in those those toxins and so, <laughs> so it's it's all ass backwards really funny but that's
3: why i think i wish people didn't get so focused on the cell culture stuff because it's it's literally moot i mean it is it's it's not a not a valid dependent variable and you don't even have an independent variable unless you just say well we're just going to consider the fluid from the person the iv okay that's fine but there's all kinds of stuff in there and you know what does that mean and you're just okay you don't know that that's the thing that made the cell culture develop the cytopathic effect in the first place and that's where longest stuff does come in and i think that's valuable but it's not the bigger picture
0: yeah for sure the bigger
3: picture is the methodology in my in my opinion
0: no absolutely but it's just like you know you're forced to kind of like address these things yeah. because it's you know it's so at the forefront of, yeah. of the conversation
2: yeah. and what i also sorry just um before we go on to the next point just carrying on from your point there jordan about the um contagion studies so that's true natural science yeah i am actually seriously doubting whether or not you can actually do science on a human being like we do from a laboratory perspective because once right. you cut something out of a living body and look at it under a microscope that's yeah. in no way reminiscent of what's occurring in a, in a living right. human being so when we're doing these natural experiments these observational experiments where we're taking sick people and exposing them under controlled conditions and no one's getting sick well that's kind of a big flaw in your theory and you now have to be able to explain why that is actually occurring and no one's been able to explain that no one even touches on it it's almost like those human trials never existed and now everything's done in the lab and it's all you know high tech these days that old stuff don't worry about it. It's not important.
4: <laughs> <laughs> old it, science. Man. It's an
3: interesting fallacy how they do this. Like, well, that's old. Like, like it doesn't matter. Like, no, they actually had a better methodology than the modern.
0: Like Koch's right. postulates, right? That's yeah, old, well, that's antiquated. Yeah,
3: and those had flawed because a lot of them already assumed bacteria caused disease, right? But I mean, they at least, you know, it made a little bit of sense. They were kind of a modified version of the scientific method. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, when they couldn't get what they originally set out for that's when they created the old asymptomatic carrier thing so (laughs) those went went out the rails (laughs) off the rails pretty quick so yeah
0: all right so i want to jump to some some contagion studies if if we can uh daniel i know you're you're the master of these uh you've got quite a collection um what what evidence do we have have they ever proven contagion have they been able to pass you know disease from one person to the other what's the uh what do the papers say?
2: Uh, the short answer is no. <laughs> so there's no. Okay. Look, I've been looking a lot, man. I really have. Um, I'm not out to do this for an agenda or to seem popular or cool. Actually, it's the total opposite. Like, yeah. <laughs> come at, believe it or not, coming out and saying this stuff doesn't really get you a lot of friends. Um, But it's just because of what the evidence says. And I've spent a long time looking at many, many papers and I've looked at, influenza scarlet fever chickenpox, pox measles uh, recently epstein-barr virus um and i'm sure there's a, probably a couple of others in there as well and anytime in these papers where they've exposed healthy people to sick people or they've taken the blood or mucus or they've literally like cut chickenpox scabs off people and ground it up and injected it and done all sorts of stuff um They were even getting so desperate. They were like infecting a monkey, right? With this virus and then taking the blood from the monkey and then injecting it into people. And no one's getting sick, right? So, and when I say no one, I I quite literally mean that. So it wasn't like um, they were exposing people to like healthy people, to sick people and 30% of them were getting ill. It's like, no one's getting ill. And even in the literature, they're saying, well, this is really peculiar because we're not sure if what we're doing in the experiments is um, mimicking the the natural mode of contagion. We must be missing something. Um, And those papers do exist. I've probably found four dozen human experimental papers, and every week I'm finding more and more because they're not easy to come by, believe it or not. And it all says the same thing they're not able to, to make people sick or if they are, it's with symptoms that are not related to the condition. So, you know, sometimes they'll have injected people with like measles scabs uh, or like the blood from a measles patient. And they'll get like a bit of a fever.
3: As they and should. they'll say, well, you know, <laughs>
2: this is now evidence of there's some sort of contagious thing passed on here. It's like, Whoa you just went and object, injected someone with another person's blood <laughs> and they got a fever. Like <laughs> you want to say that's the virus. And yeah, for me, that was when I sort of thought, well, that's the, the natural observational um, exper- experiments that have been done. A lot of these were controlled. A lot of them were also blinded. Um, and there were even experiments where they went and injected people with saline, told them that it was a, a contagious virus, and made them sick, right? With saline. So yeah, to say that injecting a fluid of another person into someone else and then becoming ill with non-specific symptoms is proof of anything, yeah, it's a bit um, disappointing really because I was expecting to see more stronger evidence for the the fact of contagion and not just viruses. So I've also looked for um, bacteria I've found no evidence of bacteria causing disease. Um, mold, like I've only just recently looked at that. So mold um, doesn't potentially cause disease and uh, parasites as well. So I've looked at the evidence for all of these areas and there's, I'm yet to find anything. I'm not saying it's not there. Yeah.
1: Can I just add, sorry, do you mind? No, go for it. But Because um, a lot of people are probably thinking right now oh, but, you know, that time that I visited my sister and I got sick, our family got sick. And, like, people think we haven't experienced those times, which I just got sick, um, you know, like a few days ago and my sister got sick at the same time. So we all have experienced those moments. So we're not saying that, like, people don't get sick at the same time. And even these these contagion studies that Daniel's talking about, even if those people all got sick at the same time, it still doesn't prove that there was a virus because they then have to find... Exactly. the virus so even if you know someone coughed into the face of somebody else they, they both got sick you know from each other they would still like that still doesn't prove that a virus exists we'd have to actually find the virus Absolutely. And, yeah so it's two separate we're issues. Not, yeah we're not saying that people don't get sick at the same time because we've all observed that and experienced that in our yeah in our lives before
0: yeah, I mean, how do you, you know what is a virus first of all? I mean, you could say like, "Oh, I have a unicorn." I mean, it would it would mean the same thing, you know That's what I mean? Sure. <laughs> so um but yeah, you know, it's like how do you know it's not sharing an environment? You're sharing food. You're I mean, you don't know what 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 other toxins are around. So we're just kind of arbitrarily jumping to this this one thing and cutting out every every other possibility.
3: Yeah. They, I mean, there's stuff that there's variables that are unknown. It could be, it could be non-material. It could be resonance. It could be a spiritual connection. I mean, I could make up a million things and it'd be just as valid as virus, right? Because they're just me telling stories and that's what they've done with the virus thing. Um, They've just been able to concoct something in a cell culture to, to say that's it. But, you know, it could be anything. It could be nothing. It could be biased that we're sensing, well, because I got sick at the same time, there must be, we caught something from each other, but there's plenty of people that don't get sick at the same time. and But the people who do tend to talk about it more, right? When somebody, a family gets sick at the same time, they're going to talk about it. Oh, well, we were all sick this weekend. And everybody's like, oh man, yeah, you just caught something. And that there's plenty of people that that doesn't happen to even in families, plenty of times my wife's been sick with whatever, never been scared to kiss her if she's got a stomach bug, quote unquote whatever drink after never get sick right like again that's where we're just we're interjecting or injecting our own kind of ideas into what it could be and that's fine as long as we're speculating but we don't really owe it i hate to say it like that but we don't owe an explanation um, for why people get sick unless we know for sure all, all we can say is like daniel's looked at there's no real evidence that contagion exists in the way they claim that it exists and so that doesn't mean it might not exist in some
0: other fashion right and we we want to take a look at what is actually uh causing this to you know find the real the real cause and for me personally i think a large part of it really is like um you know people's belief i think that that plays a large a large part in things uh people believing that they were exposed to something you know um they they manifest symptoms and i think we've seen that in in even you know mainstream uh scientific literature
3: yeah it's real i mean i've, I've done it to myself I, you overthink something and you start worrying about it and you will get worse and worse and then maybe you suddenly figure out it's not the thing you were wor- what you're worried about wasn't legit and everything goes away you get better immediately um we've all made ourselves sick in our stomach from worry or you go have diarrhea all of a sudden because you're worried because you can't get a hold of your mom or I mean, did I catch a bug? Did, am, I, am I having diarrhea because I caught a virus? Well, you know what I mean? It's just, mm. there's so many things that we just make up stories to help ourselves feel better. Well, I, I, this happened because of this. And I know that. I hear that from people all the time. Patients make up all kinds of stories about what happened to them. And they, <laughs> I mean, I mean, I don't mean it in a mean way. We, we kind of all do it. It's like a, I don't know what you'd call it, a kind of rescue device or some kind of protective mechanism to make ourselves kind of feel better. But it's very common, and the stuff I hear will blow your mind. And people think, "Well, I, this happened because of this, or because their their general practitioner told them this story. Therefore, it must be true." You know, I, I, it's just amazing what what you hear. But you know, the mass psychogenic illness effect you know effect is yeah. it seems to be legitimate. Yeah. Um, and so that that's something that people have kind of discounted the nocebo effect. I mean, all these things come into play, and just the bias that comes into you hear more about people when they, you know, let's say like a, a group of eight people in, a, in an office building get sick at the same time. They're going to talk about that. They're going to tell people you're going to hear about it. Whereas the eight people that, let's say somebody tested positive and nobody got sick, you're not going to hear about it as much. Probably, you know what I mean? So there's already yeah. a bias kind of built in to the way people believe about this stuff.
0: And I think we, we've seen our own little version of that too in like the, you know, whatever truth movement uh, with the whole shedding thing. In my, yeah. in my opinion, right? Like everybody, you know, jumped to assigning causation to vaccines. Like everyone, it was automatically vaccines. They were near somebody who was vaccinated and they got shed on and they developed these symptoms. I mean, that's not how science works. That's not how you find causation.
3: Right. Yeah, I should, I should have been sick a million times over by now with all the Vax people I've been around, you know, yeah. un- unmatched and all. I mean, it's just, but if you believe certain things are going to happen, like I said, I do agree, you can kind of manifest certain symptoms. Like, psychosomatic is legitimate. It's, it's a real thing.
0: Um they do it with surgery, too? They had people, like, they said they were doing surgery on them and they believed that they were getting surgery.
3: Yeah, chemo, they did not have a chemo, you know, the same mm. thing. They told me, I that's mean, what well, placebo placebo and nocebo equal you know opposite sides but same thing you believe something bad is going to happen at will you believe something great is going to happen at might that's placebo effect you know and the mind is very powerful and i don't think we we don't understand it enough to even really talk about it but we don't give it enough credit everything's got to be material right it's got to be a toxin it's got to be a particle it's got to be something when we discount the connections we have and our beliefs and things uh, and information and how it affects us so
2: yeah. Well, that's everything. also interesting um, when you think about the reports of conjoined twins and how one of them had measles and one of them was perfectly healthy. Another yeah. one had like scarlet fever and the other one was completely healthy. They both shared the same blood supply. They both shared the same immune, immune system, um, but they had cent- separate central nervous systems. So that is something that is different between those individuals who are are conjoined um so if it was an immune related issue then both would be having symptoms right but if they share separate central nervous systems and one's affected by say maybe an emotion it's manifesting as, as that physical disease i'm not saying that that's actually what's going on but i just look at many there's probably about half a dozen of those reports in the the scientific literature of that occurring and i it just makes you wonder you know is there more to this than we currently understand um is it an, an energetic thing is it an emotional thing is it pheromones like has anyone done any science on pheromones and whether or not that can have impacts on people i don't know um maybe there has i just haven't looked i haven't looked but there are many other potential explanations the longer that we just dig our feet into the ground and say it's a virus and we don't look for anything else well all you're ever going to get and hear about is virus you won't ever potentially look at any of these other um, possibilities and um, conclude that they are or are not of any merit in understanding what actually makes people ill um yeah, so many, so many aspects to this. It's it's very far reaching and it's very um, perplexing, to, to say the least. At sometimes, I think.
0: Do you do you have any personal theories, uh, Daniel, as far as like what what you think happens most of the time?
2: Well, I don't just make up stuff, right? Because right. then we're just going to be doing the exact same thing as um, the, what the germ theory proponents are doing. But like I did a blog on my website about what may happen and I was just looking at some data and the changes in humidity uh, in certain areas because the governments um, and certain like, space agencies yeah, around the world are using this data um, to predict with almost 100% certainty whether or not there's going to be a viral influenza outbreak based on the humidity through that year. Uh-huh. I thought, how on earth can they do that? Right? They say, oh, because the humidity, uh, the changes in humidity dry out your nasopharynx, and then they're more prone to being uh, infiltrated by a virus when you breathe it in from the environment, right? That's what the humidity is doing, is drying out your mucous membranes, like the, the change in humidity. Um, but what I found was when there's a change in humidity, I can't remember if there's less or more, but there's an increase in and de- a decrease of toxins that are released either from the soil or the environment um, into the atmosphere, right? When the humidity changes and there tends to be higher levels in summer, uh, more of these toxic substances in the atmosphere. Uh, And then moving into winter where the air is cooler and drier, those toxins start to go back into the soil and back into the, the trees and things like that. And I was thinking, you know, if if this illness is a sort of detoxification type phenomena that we're observing, when's the best time to detox? When there's fewer contaminants in the atmosphere or when there's more? And it would be when there's fewer. And is this a reason why people in winter get this sickness? Because they're detoxifying, they're getting a cold and and a flu or whatever symptoms are associated with these colds and flus these days, right? Um, They're getting these symptoms because they're detoxifying when the environment is allowing them to do so. Um, And there's, I I don't know, there might've been like 30 or 40 references in that blog that I've written. But am I saying that that's the actual cause? I don't know. It's a theory. Mm. And what would then need to be done is for the proper scientific experiments to be conducted to either validate um, that theory or it's an old hypothesis let's move on to the next thing and and you know back to the drawing board but we're so stagnant we haven't the germ theory has been here for what 120 140 something years and we haven't ever thought about any other potential possibility it's crazy we're meant to be a uh society who embraces science right but we're um I think we're being fairly anti-scientific when it comes to some of these uh, issues that we're plagued with in uh, 2022. And not just virology, there's many other things as well.
0: Another good point for uh, the, you know, wintertime detox is also, you know, all the holidays that happen, the overeating that happens, you know, the exposure to, to more toxins. Um, <laughs> that's a that's a pretty you know pretty good argument that's when you know there's so many holidays all mashed together and just you're eating the wrong things makes a lot of sense
3: i mean you're traveling a lot of people are traveling they're under stress they're stressed with loved ones people they don't want to be around maybe or do you know what i mean like yeah. you could think up 20 quick little things off the top of your head that could increase stress and toxemia in a person during these times but mm-hmm. again we're just kind of spitballing that stuff i mean it, but the thing is, people seem to disregard all of that. They're like, oh, no, it's not that. It was a, it was an infection. I know it was because I was sick, right? It's, again, pointing to the effect, playing the cause. It's just easier to latch onto the mainstream consensus view because it's easy. It's just easy. It's tidy. It's a tidy little package, you know? And they say, oh, I got, I got a sore throat. I need antibiotics. And that's it. And they don't have to think about their lifestyle and what were they eating? What were they thinking? What were they doing? What were they drinking? What's their life? You know, they don't it just advocates responsibility. The germ theory does honestly. Yeah. Um, and that, that's, what's so frustrating about it. And people just take a pill and they think, or take a vaccine and, and they're good and they don't, they don't, we take for granted all the toxicity in our environment. I really, something I did until recently um, until you start looking and then you go, holy cow, it's everywhere. Uh, you can't escape it almost, you know, you, unless you go live in the middle of nowhere and a, grow your own food and have your own water supply. You know, I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's actually worse than people I think can even imagine. So it's easier to mask a lot of that crap with a, a new virus or a new outbreak of this or that, you know, I know Jim West For sure. on his blog talks about that stuff all the time. I mean, he's kind of focused on, on toxicity and, and air pollution is his thing, but it's a, it's a good piece of the puzzle, I think. And it's very neglected because it, it's going to end up calling out a lot of big industry and that we can't have that right there's too much money and politics involved so there's always a business model side to a lot of this stuff and so that's and it sounds conspiracy theory it's not it's just the way of the world
2: it may not even be toxicity like it that may be a cause but there might be multiple causes here because yeah. if you look up cold and flu symptoms i mean there's a, a list as long as your arm how many diseases have cold and flu symptoms right, right? So it may not be a contagious thing. It may not be a toxicity thing. There are reports of ships being on the high seas for months and months on end. And then just before they get to the port, say they leave from like, I don't know, halfway around the world in like South America and they're on, the, on a big ship and they've had no contact with the outside world for months. And then as soon as they near the port, say in like China, um, some port around there, the whole crew falls ill. But it turns out that the people on the mainland were also ill. Um, you know, these are sort of reports in previous pandemics, like in the Spanish flu. So it's how is it possible that the toxin, did it go through the air and then affect that boat? And every single man on the boat got exposed to the same toxin, at the same time, like, there's so many inconsistencies here. It's very hard to, to put our finger on any one cause because there may not be one cause, yeah. right? There's so many um, potential unknown and confounding factors that we have to take into account here. And again, that's why I don't really like to jump on and say, this is definitely what it is because right. I'd just be making up nonsense. I don't know. <laughs> I know what <but> it's not. but <laughs> I don't know what
0: it is. True. Um, I wanted to ask you, Daniel, we got a lot of questions about, since you brought it up before, about uh, parasites and Lyme disease. That's a huge question. Do you have any uh, wisdom to impart as far as that? Because I, I know yeah. very little about parasites. Yeah.
2: Look, I'm um, going to be talking about this in my upcoming webinar, but uh, I can talk about some of the research that I've found. Yeah. Um, and I, I will have this will probably be my last sort of um, discussion point here, Patrick, because I will sure. have to get going. I'm sorry. No, no worries. Uh, but yeah, parasites. I was always of the opinion that they cause disease. Now, there may be things like ticks, right, that can come and bite you and make you ill. But I don't think that that's it's probably the poison that's being exposed to you from the, the uh, tick that's making you sick. But an internal parasite in the gut, um, again, how do we know that it causes disease? So we see people with gastrointestinal symptoms. We look at their stool and we see a parasite and we go, oh, that's the cause. Well, there are many instances in the literature of people having asymptomatic parasitic diseases. So there's these parasites in their gut and they've got no problems. They're called like asymptomatic carriers. And then there's also experiments where they've taken healthy people and given them parasites. And we're talking about pathogenic ones like Klebsiella, for example, and uh, did not cause any disease. Uh, There are also other experiments where they've done fecal transplants for people who have no gastrointestinal symptoms. They take feces that contains these parasites and inject it rectally into these healthy people and they don't get disease. Uh, they've given people like parasite eggs to drink and they don't get ill. Uh, and we're talking like pathogenic parasites here, or supposedly pathogenic parasites. Also, um, some studies where, like in animals, they've found higher levels of heavy metals and toxins in the tissue of the gut in animals who don't have as many parasites. The animals who've got more parasites, they've got a much healthier gut, less heavy metal toxicity in the the tissue. Uh, Yeah, so there's a few things there that sort of make me scratch my head uh, in regards to whether or not parasites are actually causing or trying to help, like causing disease or trying to help us. There's also many um, scientific papers where they've taken people with inflammatory bowel diseases and given them parasites. And the inflammatory bowel disease is reversed. So for us to have this statement that, oh, the parasite's the problem, is it? And again, the, the reason why I asked that question is, where is the evidence to show that it causes the problem? When you give the parasite to a healthy person, it doesn't cause disease. Well, maybe it just doesn't cause disease, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, and there are many, many factors again, as to why people might have the the parasite there. So it might be that you've got heavy metals. We know that they eat heavy metals. They ingest all sorts of toxins like persistent organic pollutants. We know that they digest dead and dying tissue, right? So if you've got some sort of diet or external factor impacting your gut, which is causing a higher turnover of cells, now you've got tissue destruction, Maybe the body's like, "Damn, we really need that parasite to hang around to clean up the mess, so we're going to keep it there, and it's there to try and help you. But if you're just getting this constant exposure to heavy metals in your environment, well the parasite's going to stay there and try and clean up the mess." Um, and we again, we look at that and we say, "Well, the person's got the symptoms because of the parasite." and we kill the parasite off, and their symptoms go away. Well, it's very likely that that's because as the parasite digests food, it produces toxic metabolic waste products. So if you're feeding it rubbish, it's going to produce a toxic metabolic waste product, which then causes diarrhea, which is not a disease. It's an elimination response. So the body's just got the the diarrhea and the gastrointestinal discomfort because it's trying to clear out what... the um, the parasites are produced because they're converting really super toxic things into less toxic things that your body can now eliminate through the diarrhea. And we're just confusing that. Um, Much like what we've done with viruses, much like what we've done with bacteria. It's very possible. Um, But again, these are only theories. um, And can I say conclusively that parasites don't cause disease? No. But to say that they do, I haven't seen any proof for that. So yeah, the jury's still out on that one for me.
1: And I just wanted to mention that for people who are thinking, well, I did a parasite cleanse and I was really like felt really good afterwards. I think if your body is really toxic, if you do a parasite cleanse and that, you know, if that consists of trying to get your body's toxicity levels lower, you will find that you will improve. And it may not be because you killed parasites, but because, you've eliminated toxins. So sometimes just the way we've interpreted things, like I've had to learn to change the way I think about how the body heals itself and how it, you know, why have I improved my health? Was it because I killed bacteria or was it because, you know, yeah, I've eliminated toxins more efficiently.
3: And I mean, you just answered your own question about the antivirals. It's the same thing, right? Just because you take something and you get a desired effect doesn't mean it happened because of the reason you think it did.
2: And you know this is how some of those um, natural antivirals might work. So it's not that it's killing off a parasite. Oh, sorry, antiviral, antiparasitic might work. It's not that it's killing off a parasite. It's helping. They're acting as chelating agents in the gut to bind to heavy metals and take them out. And we know that that's a, an effect with many of these herbal substances. So it's literally taking the heavy metals away, taking the food source away from the parasite, and it's going all right, well, there's nothing left here for me to do. I'm going to pack up my bags and go. Yeah. So we look at, oh, I took black walnut and my parasite went away. Oh, it's good antiviral. Mm, did it really work that way or did it work another way? Right. So much to ask, so many questions that we have left unanswered, but it's fun to ask them.
3: Well, I just want to hit on a point that Daniel, Daniel made because there's a difference between an association that you find versus giving the thing and seeing what happens. Right? That's where you're basically scientifically manipulating a variable. Right? There's a difference between an association and making up a story about it, but then taking the thing that you're making up a story and then giving it, manipulating it, doing it and going, oh, wait, it, it, hasn't, it didn't do the thing we thought. Right, That's, that's what we should be doing here with, with all this stuff. So it's an important point.
0: Oh great stuff. All right, guys. So I want to uh I want to thank you so much for, for taking the time to talk about this. I think we could spend, you know, another uh another three hours talking about all this. But um as a final thought, what would you like to see from the scientific community, from people, whatever? What's your what's your final statement? If any. <laughs> I'll
2: go first. Um yeah. I'd just like for someone to show me a paper where an isolated virus has caused disease and to sit down with me and just explain it. Like we don't need to come at this from an aggressive standpoint. Just explain it like man-to-man, tell me where I'm going wrong and I'll recant everything I've ever said. So that's all I've really got to say on the matter. (laughs) That's all I'm after.
3: Excellent. Um, Start doing science. I mean, I mean, <laughs> I mean. really, if you're gonna if you're gonna use the word, use it correctly, and uh, you know, and I, I think we all use the word incorrectly most of the time because it becomes such a colloquial thing. Science is about finding the cause of a natural phenomenon. That's it. Everything else is technology, it's statistics, it's storytelling. There's use for all of that stuff, but that's not real science. Like if you're truly trying to tell somebody the cause of something happening in nature you have to validate that that's what real science is so sadly most of the stuff we're told is scientific is not scientific and i think that's where people go off the rails and this you you bring that up with somebody like these guys or the twitter guys that i talk to like guys that work in the field right they're in the lab doing stuff and you you try to get them on that scientific method then they're really oh that's fifth grade stuff you we don't do that anymore i mean just blow it <laughs> off right so that's that's what i would ask is just let's Get people that are intellectually honest to start really doing science again, if it was ever done in the first place. You know, I mean, let's let's really ask questions, ask hard questions, question everything, all the methodology, like like really look at it hard. It doesn't mean everything we're told is a lie. I'm not like that. I mean, there is a lot. And I don't, it's not a lie, it's just false premises, right? But let's get back to looking and asking questions like we're doing, going, okay, let's backtrack a little to show where this was validated. I wanna do this with a lot of stuff, with PCR tests, with all these other things, like show me a nucleotide, show me one, show me, right? Like you're making all these claims that you can find these sub-microscopic chemical structures in a sequence and read them. How is that validated? I wanna know from my own ignorance, like somebody out there has to know instead of just giving me a cartoon going here, this is what it does, right? I don't want cartoons i want to know so and, and i think the more we all know the better we're going to be at kind of deciphering this stuff so absolutely,
0: sophia lead us out
1: <laughs> yeah i just want to encourage people that like um i have no background in science or anything like that but i don't think that you it actually requires a background to just look at some of this stuff that everyone's talking about and um yeah, like you can make a decision based on, you know, what you're looking at. Like we, we can, like it's not very hard to see the logical fallacies and to see that what they're doing is is not actually a logical, logically coherent. So, yeah, just some encouragement that we can all like learn together and you don't have to be a scientist or really <laughs> smart to understand that some of these things don't make sense.
0: Absolutely. Basic logic. All right, guys. Thank you so much again. I really appreciate you stopping by and uh, hope to talk to you again in the in the future.
3: Thanks, Patrick. Thanks, everybody.
2: Thank you, Patrick. You're very welcome.
4: They can be cultivated in the laboratory. They can be stored. They can be passaged. They meet all the criteria of Koch's postulates. There is the issue that it's difficult to reproduce the human disease in various animal models. And so sometimes that's considered...
0: The information presented in this program is not intended as legal, health, or nutritional advice. It is provided for informational purposes only. Alighton does not endorse nor accept responsibility for any statements, views, or opinions expressed by its guests.